This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Gina Martin-Adams. She's our chief equity strategist for Bloomberg Intelligence. She's on the phone there uh, looking much further uh, than the state of New Jersey at the whole equity world. And Dave Wilson also uh, in New Jersey. Another, we've just got, you know, New Jersey on New Jersey here. Uh, Our stock editor, also the author of the chart and stock of the day. Uh, GMA, I want to start with you. What do you make of this week in the world of equities? Uh, I think a couple of things really come to mind. First is while on the energy sector, weathering an oil price in negative territory is something we most of us never thought we'd see, and the energy stocks still performing uh, reasonably well in that kind of environment suggests we really priced in a tremendous amount of weakness in uh, the, the earlier weeks of this year, in particular during the crash when energy stocks really doubled with the decline of the index at large. Secondly is another wow, and that's on earnings season. I think that you know, we were all expecting earnings to be very, very weak um, <laughs> in the midst of the uh, uh, the weeks of Q1 reporting. They have been very, very weak, but even weaker than expected. And yet stocks are kind of treading water this week. So I, I do think that the lesson to be learned here is policymakers – through a whole lot at this market. That's why we've had the rally that we've had. And we were already pricing in a tremendous amount of weak data to come, at least in the interim. And this week is really proving that case. Yeah, no doubt about it. Hey, Dave Wilson, come on in on uh, the trade today and how the week's been looking overall, because we've had some selling, we've had some buying. Uh, Where are we? Well, I mean, you look at today and things have really kind of settled out to some extent. There's some earnings-driven moves. You know, you look at some stocks, like, say, a Capital One, for example. Now, they came out and you know, had quite the increase in their uh, loan loss provisions, as you can understand, given what uh, the company's facing. I mean, they do a lot of credit card business. Uh, they also do a lot of business with companies in the oil and gas industry. And right. so you put that all together, they've had to more than triple the amount they set aside for bad loans to $5.4 billion, and yet... That stock's up 5.6%. So I guess they're sort of getting the benefit of the doubt, unlike, say, other companies. Boeing being a notable example, it's not so much earnings with them as it is the earnings are going to be coming up. And we've got people uh, who are familiar with the company telling us that there are going to be cuts to production of the 787 Dreamliner that go with them and job reductions as well. So, I mean, you still got a lot of earnings related back and forth, even on a day when Things have kind of settled out if you look at the broader market, say, in terms of the S&P 500. And so, Gina, how do we think about this equity world going forward? You know, we've talked about earnings, but it still feels fragile uh, for obvious reasons. Yeah. And maybe it's just because I'm feeling fragile. The world feels fragile. I think we um, all feel it. Like, I feel like the tone yeah, from all and, of us, and maybe we're just tired. But And even yeah. when we see, you know, like little headlines that normally the market would take in stride, it seems to be reacting on a hair trigger. Do you agree with that? And, and what do you think sort of gets us to a point where we're not so skittish? Yeah, investor confidence is absolutely very, very low. Um, you know, I think the vast majority of people are looking at this market rally and saying, 
wow, can it last in the face of extraordinarily negative data? Uh, it, we, to make you feel a bit better, or maybe not, <laughs> we, we feel this way in the midst of every recession. Yeah. And in the midst of every recession, stocks start recovering even before the fundamental data and usually start really ripping as the fundamental data is hitting its worst point. I think this recession obviously is very unique in a number of ways and maybe makes us feel more vulnerable and more uncertain because of the um, you know, very unclear path to recovery and path to potential progress in the economy. But I do think that stocks are effectively reacting like they normally do in recession, anticipating better growth emerging in the second half of the year. That means there is one humongous risk to the outlook for stocks, and that is we don't successfully start to reopen the right. economy in the right. second half of the year. And that makes investors feel really uncertain because they don't they don't know for sure. So I think you're going to have to get to a point of real progress on reopening without uh, too many backslides uh, in terms of, you know, folks trying to get back to work and then contagion rates starting to skyrocket again before you really see investor confidence recover in this kind of environment. I think that's why, Gina, we kicked off our show saying we're all kind of in a weird place, right? We have all gotten into a certain kind of routine six weeks in, and yet, you know, we think things are going to bounce back eventually. We know they will, but there is still so much uncertainty about when that happens. Um, listen, guys, thanks to check, you know, great to check in with you. Have a, a good and safe weekend. Uh, Gina Martin-Adams uh, of Bloomberg Intelligence and Dave Wilson. We do want to talk a little bit more about what's going on with the virus. Um, a friend of the show, so informed, Dr. Ian Lospader, is clinical associate professor of medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. He joins us on this Friday on the phone in New York City. Dr. Lospader, nice to have you back with us. Um, I hope you're doing well. And, you know, we were thinking about the last time we talked with you, you were doing um, rounds and you were in the ICU um, unit at your hospital. Tell us kind of what you're hearing now, what you're seeing. Uh, here we are a week later or so. So uh, COVID-19 is uh, very dynamic. There's always new new data coming out, uh, which I'm happy to update everyone on. And thank you again for having me. And I hope you guys are staying safe and doing well. Yeah. Um, uh, things are, are stable here. So uh, a number of things came out. One, certainly uh, remdesivir, which we talked about last week and said, don't get your hopes up too quickly. That certainly those studies that were leaked suggested that there was not really a benefit, and we said that that may not be the case. Uh, you know, it's typical this is good news and bad news. It, it's possible the drug may be helpful. It depends on timing. In other words, many of the patients were really quite ill, and possibly starting it earlier uh, may be helpful. Uh, also, another report today on the uh, JAMA Journal of the uh, AMA looked at hydroxychloroquine and chloroquine, uh, a number of patients, 440 patients, uh, and they found that there was a higher death rate. Uh, and so we need to be very uh, careful about this. Uh, they looked at a high dose and a low dose, um, and even, uh, even the low dose had uh, significant uh, issues. So, and, and we know certainly the, the, uh, this is used extensively in lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, uh, malaria prophylaxis, and you always have to check the EKG that something called the QT interval or the QTC uh, really has to be uh, at a certain length uh, in order to safely use the medication. And they found that there were higher incidence of uh, death from arrhythmias. So uh, there's no simple solution. Maybe right. it's a, a dose issue. Maybe it's when you take it. 
Perhaps it's useful to prevent. We really need more studies, and I think this, uh, these two drugs, remdesivir and hydroxychloroquine, that were very well touted as uh, used on everyone, I think we now see uh, we need more data, and this is right. what Fauci basically says. You need controlled studies to know when to use it, what dose to use it, uh, because if it's a free-for-all, uh, you can get into trouble, and clearly people did. Um, well, speaking the other I- thing... I, 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 if you don't mind me jumping in here, Ian, yeah, I just want to make sure that we pretty quickly get to the, what seemed like big news from yesterday, and I want a gut check from you, which was the data, speaking of data, that Governor Andrew Cuomo revealed uh, about the infection rate based on the antibody study. What did you make of that? What should we make of it? Great. Uh, that was actually going to be my well, there next you point. Go. Um, see, great minds. Uh, I, you know, I think that that 20% number is pretty accurate. I think it may even be higher. Remember, this was 3,000 patients that were tested or 3,000 people. It, it, I think as we do test even more people, I think we're going to find a much higher number um, of positives, which is good news uh, when we talk about good news, yeah. bad news, because we're moving closer to herd immunity. Uh, and that should make things better. That better weather and so forth may, in fact, uh, be responsible for the caseload in New York City, at least, certainly flattening out, and, and it looks like it's beginning to drop. So I think that's pretty accurate, that one in five being positive, and I think it may even be higher, uh, and I think that potentially is good news, assuming that those antibodies, and we've spoken about this before, really protect you right. uh, from a second wave or if the virus mutates, as flu does every season, which is why we need a seasonal vaccine. But the thinking is, if you even if you have some antibodies, there's some protective effect. In other words, you may get a virus again, but it should not be as severe. That's at right. least the the thinking and the data we have on other viruses. Well, and and to be clear, that 20% that you're talking about, that was the New York City uh, figure Correct. statewide in, in New York. It's around 13 14%, uh, but that 20%, and you've been uh, on the front lines of that, uh, you know that. I mean, you know what it looks like uh, here in the tri-state area uh, and in New York City specifically. All right, Dr. Ian Lesbader, stick with us, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. Joining us on the phone from New York City he is going to continue that conversation with us, Carol. He's become our go-to guy yeah. <laughs> in a lot of ways. It's sort of like our Friday, like, get, let's catch our breath, figure out what's going on, uh, and walk through the numbers and, and walk through what he's seeing. Right. Uh, you know, a practitioner on the front lines, but really having that wonderful perspective of everything that we've been talking about throughout the week and and making some sense of it. So we're going to come back on the other side of the break. I do want to ask him a little bit more about that second wave and yep. Im- immunity, because I think it's just we're finding out it's not so clear um, about all of that. We're still with Dr. Ian Lusbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center on the phone from New York. So I did want to ask you, Ian, a little bit about this second wave. I feel like there was a lot lot of conversations about there and there's some nervousness that the virus does come back when it gets uh, into the fall and the winter months. What are your expectations? What are the, the conversations that you guys are having at NYU? Well, you know, I think this is really uh, unknown, uncharted territory. Uh, as far as we all know, this is uh, new as of the fall. And uh, we really don't know what the second wave will be like. Many viruses are seasonal. We talk about flu. 
so they don't really uh, even get eradicated with herd immunity, and they mutate. And we know that this virus certainly has mutated uh, a number of times. There's some data maybe that it's actually getting a little less lethal uh, because if you kill off your host, uh, you're not going to be able to reproduce. So it may be actually that it gets a little less lethal along the way, but I can tell you, um, based on what's going on now, it's still a virus to be uh, quite afraid of. I was on a WebEx uh, recently where we looked at uh, autopsies, and the research really shows that there are every organ is affected. That's why we've heard reports from Mount Sinai. About more strokes in young people, uh, which is very, very rare under age 50. And when you look at all these organs, according to this pathologist uh, from NYU, there are microthrombi or clots in almost every organ looked at. Wow. Heart, lungs, kidneys, uh, the gut, skeletal muscle, which is why there are so many symptoms, headaches, stroke, uh, heart issues, heart failure, lung, lungs filling up with fluid, kidney uh, failure, something called AKI or acute kidney injury. So this is really uh, quite an unusual phenomenon where the virus, uh, due to inflammation, we think, generates all these microclots, and under the microscope, we see blood clots and platelets uh, throughout really every organ. So it is quite lethal. We don't quite understand why in those um, uh, patients who are more vulnerable, uh, men greater than women, uh, older people, obesity, diabetes, hypertension, smokers, you know, there are a number of subgroups that really seem to get this more severely. Um, but uh, we'll have to see what that second wave really shows. Uh, hopefully, it will be less lethal, but we don't know yet. What? Why are viruses getting more lethal? Uh, you know, it's hard to know. You know, Ebola uh, has never really, for example, been eradicated. It's it's uh, quite lethal and quite communicable. Uh, it seems to uh, come up. Uh, animals have a huge reservoir. Uh, we don't really come in close contact with most wild animals, but uh, whether it's uh, in a variety, avians, uh, chicken, poultry have coronaviruses, uh, bats, uh, and and the closer that humans get to those wild animals, they can certainly get viruses that they're not familiar with. They may live in animals, but when they're exposed to humans, it's really a new organism, Hmm. and we don't have the antibodies. Yeah. And so, Ian, before we let you go, I've got to ask you, you know, especially given your experience very much on, on the front lines, knowing the medical uh, aspect of this, which you've done such a great job explaining to us again today, um, thinking about it socially, thinking about it from the perspective of New York City, where do you think we go from here in the next few weeks based on what you're seeing and what you know from a medical perspective? Yeah, I think it's uncharted territory. At some point, obviously, you have to pull the trigger and begin to get people back in. My sense would be uh, it's somewhat reassuring that we have that 13 to 20 percent positivity. It should be protective. The summer season, the warmer weather we think is helpful. So I do think we are coming very close to the time when people can reasonably safely return. I think we'll have to have some social distancing and masks and um, trying to keep apart. But I think if people have underlying illnesses, and we talked about that, obesity, diabetes, high blood pressure, smokers, elderly, if you have many of those, um, it's probably best to try and uh, avoid contact or stay in as much as possible. But I think for the majority of people, it will be reasonably safe. Most cases are mild or asymptomatic. There will be some risks. Some people will get it. Some people will die. But I think overall society will be able to um, 
withstand this and progress in a reasonably safe way. And then we'll just have to see. Hopefully vaccines will come along sooner than we think. And hopefully some of the drug trials will show more effective treatment. Uh, if that all comes together, then I think we'll be lucky and uh, uh, next fall should uh, turn out okay. But uh, there's still a lot that's up in the air. Yeah. yeah, yeah, that's what I think. And that's why I feel like we're in such a weird place right now because there's still so many different uh, questions. Uh, Ian, thank you so much. Jason and I so appreciate the time you give us and really the insight. It really is useful um, and so appreciated. Our Dr. Ian Lasbader, Clinical Associate Professor of Medicine at NYU Langone Medical Center. Do stay safe. Joining us on the phone from New York City, right, Jason? It's just that whole idea of every organ being infect, uh, affected. Wow. Yeah, and, and I think it's so important, and, and we're going to talk a, a little bit later about a story you and I are on the terminal today about the the impact of having a ventilator and sort of what that does and, and just the way it wrecks your body. And this, this virus is no joke. You are listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Jason Kelly, Carol Masser with you, and this is one of these stories that I was really looking forward to, in part because it starts to answer some pretty big questions, goes off of the conversation we were just talking about, about travel. How does it change real estate? How does it change? And no one is in the center of that more right. uh, than Airbnb. Uh, let's get into this with Pat Clark. He is real estate reporter for Bloomberg, joining us on the phone from New York City. He's going to talk about his story about uh, Airbnb. Also joining us, Joel Weber, the editor of Bloomberg Business Week, on the phone from Brooklyn. I love these collision stories, Joel. It's so classic Business Week. Yeah, so we we kind of started with this one um, because this was supposed to be Airbnb's year. You know, it was going to go public, and you know, the speculation was going to be that it was a direct listing rather than an IPO. Um, it, the company really seemed to have the wind at its back at the beginning of the year. It, it in some ways, looks like the uh, the last unicorn. Here's that Brian Chesky, the founder and CEO. All the other big unicorns, like the Ubers and the WeWorks and all that, like all of them have basically had their leadership implode. But Chesky's managed to like basically hold the reins. But then, like lo and behold, along comes the a coronavirus that upends everything, including travel. And so that sort of led us to Pat to say, you know, Pat is is Airbnb's moment over. What do you think, Pat? Is it? I mean, it, it, uh, I mean, you tell me, right? <laughs> are, are you going to be? Where are you going to go? You know, how are you going to vacation? And more importantly, when are you going to go on vacation again? Um, and it's. It, it really is, I mean, so much, we're looking ahead to so much uncertainty, but for Airbnb, which requires people to be feel comfortable, people to feel economically stable enough to start traveling again, people to be allowed to travel again, and then, like, are you going to go into somebody's house well, and have <laughs> confidence that you're not going to get sick there? So, um Pat, Pat, wait, wait, we just talked about a story, Jason and I, for the New York audience about what you need to clean when you're staying at a hotel and how we're all going to be traveling with disinfectants and wipes and we're going to maybe even bring our own mug or slippers so we're not walking on the floor. I mean, yeah. I mean, what do you have to do if you're going to somebody else's home? I, I kind of think all of that stuff. I mean, now, it, it, listen, listen it's, it's true for a hotel like it's true for, uh, you know, a short-term rental, whether whether it's a house or an apartment. and. And you can sort of game it out, right? Like, I mean, if you go stay in a house, a, de- a detached house, where, you know, there's no lobby and there's no elevator buttons to push, um, 
and you know you you pack your uh, your personal sanitation kit. Maybe actually, maybe in some ways, maybe that's uh, that's a more hygienic experience than um, you know passing through a certainly passing through a hotel lobby in, in you know in Times Square. Um, you know, you might feel more comfortable at the beach these days than than going to Broadway. So, Pat, one big number that jumps out to anybody who reads this story is obviously the, the billion dollars that Airbnb had to take out at a rather large rate, 11% from a, that was a loan from uh, uh, Silver Lake. What was that for? And, and, you know, it also strikes me as like that amount of capital at that kind of rate is how you could find yourself in, in trouble, right? Yeah, and I mean that was the first. They then they then raised the second billion dollar. They did a second billion dollar uh, debt raise uh, at a slightly lower rate, but still, you know, at a at, at what you know would be considered expensive money at, in in normal times. Um, I, look, I mean, I, I, it's true again. It's true across industries, in particular, particularly in the travel industry, that you need um, companies feel like they need they need a war chest or a, a sort of emergency fund to um, to survive. It really is survival capital, right? We're going to start, you know, Airbnb, is, they have internally, you know, sort of said or projected that, that revenue could be down by 50% this year. And while they, you know, kind of rein in some expenses here and there, um, you know, how do you, how do you survive? you know, with 50% yeah. of the revenue you thought you were going to get. And and the answer is you have to go and raise money at this rate. And then, uh, you, you know, it, it does. And, and it's, it's one of these sort of classic dilemmas, which is to get the emergency capital, you have to pay for it. And so, you know, that is then going to, that's going to weigh on, um, you know, on, on, on their sort of, um, their, their balance sheet for the, you know, years to come. Um, the, you know, I think in the, in the optimistic world, uh, people will start vacationing again, and Airbnb's revenues will recover, and maybe the world will look like a safer place, and they'll be able to replace the, the expensive money at uh, you know at, at at something that's more attractive. Um, but in the short term, yeah, I mean it's yeah. it's a it's a burden. Well, and so much of that burden falls on Brian Chesky here. I mean, it is just an amazing um, test of leadership and fortitude to to be in this sort of position. Tell us where he is sort of in his mindset, what you learned about him in doing this story, Pat. One of the things that I think is interesting about Chesky is that he – you know, if you like, he's kind of going back to the original idea of Airbnb, which on the, you know, I mean, on the one hand, this this is a you know a serious and in some ways cutthroat business that has um, that you know that has kind of waged war with um, local governments in, in 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 places like New York, but also lots of other big cities um, that have tried to limit the number of short-term rentals on the market and. At the same time, it is a company that is that really does have this sort of like optimistic. Uh, people can trust other people. Travel is this sort of magical experience. Uh, you know, they really do believe that, and he's 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 you know he's leaning back on these ideas um, at um, you know in this time of crisis, which I think is really interesting uh, because the you know the. It 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 requires a faith that uh, the thing that has made travel such an appealing experience 
um, you know, to, right. to it's such a it's, it's a consumer experience that's only really like a hundred years old or something, or maybe a little older, but it's it's a relatively yeah. new thing. And you know, he's he's leaning back on on that idea that people will still want to behave the way they used to. Yeah. Uh, Go ahead, Carol. It, it's a great read, and, and and we're running out of time, but I, I do encourage uh, everyone to go online or pick up the magazine and read more because, you know, they also have over a million listings in Asia, so I do think yeah. that might give us an idea of how they get out of it uh, and what that portends for the rest of the company. So we'll be watching all of that really closely. Pat Clark is real estate reporter at Bloomberg News on the phone from Portland, Maine. Jill Weber, of course, editor of Bloomberg Businessweek. Uh, check out that story. Check out all the stories that are in the magazine, and also check out our weekend show because we feature a couple of them, and you'll hear them over the weekend. Yeah, it's interesting to, to think about, especially vis-a-vis the, the hotels. Yeah. I'm going to have to dwell on that. I sort of want to put that to my family, see what they think. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.